having us for the last couple of weeks on this topic of a season of transition. Um, I'm so thankful that we are able at this point in time, I'm going to bump into that if I don't move it, at this point of transition that we are in, to actually address that. Um, Sometimes in churches you'll find the preaching schedule doesn't necessarily address issues that are going on, and I just want to thank him for bringing this up and giving us an opportunity for these two weeks to consider a season of change and transition that we are in. Uh, Today, as you may have seen from the scripture reading in Joshua, our topic will be a transition of leadership, which is very apt for us right now. We know that is, no matter what the vote is today, that is on the horizon for us as a church. We will be going through a transition of leadership. And today I just want to address with us, I think from the Word, what the Lord has spoken to me about that and what He would have us do and what He would have our gaze at this time as a church. Uh, to that end, please turn to Joshua, the first chapter. That's Joshua 1. We'll begin in verse 1. But as you turn there, I'm going to pray for us today. Lord, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness, for your presence with us this morning. Lord, I pray you would speak to your people through your word. Give us an assurance and a comfort, Lord. Give us a a boldness. Uh, Speak to us here that we would know that through it all, your hand is on your people and that uh, your love for us doesn't run out and your, your strong leadership will never end as well. Give me courage today, Lord. Give me boldness. And Lord, send your spirit to give me unction to preach your word uh, with the power of your spirit and be with these people to hear it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you would, look with me this morning to the first two verses of our text. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant or assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Much as last week, when Terry preached on the death of King Uzziah, we need to remember that this opening verse, this death of Moses, is not just a small side note. This is major to the people of Israel. Think about with me, if you are this generation of Israelite, you were probably a child or not born when Moses came to Egypt and helped lead the people out. You have grown up hearing the stories of this Egyptian prince who is actually a Hebrew, who, though raised in Pharaoh's courts, when he became older, somehow mysteriously took up your cause. You who were slaves to Pharaoh, he sees a Hebrew being beaten and he takes up your cause. He fights that Egyptian and he kills him. And because of that, he flees to Midian. And what happens, but when he's in Midian, that the Lord comes to him. Yahweh comes to him. He says, I've heard the cries of my people in Egypt. And this prince of Egypt comes back and leads out this people. There's, there's plagues. 
on the land. There's the Red Sea incident. He guides them through the wilderness. And Moses has always been the interface between Yahweh and these people. And it is this living legend, this man who walked with God, he comes from the mountain and his face shines with the very radiance of the glory of God, is dead. And their mission is still before them. So I want us to know today that it must have been quite hard for the Israelites to lose their leader, their past leader. But friends, in that, I think they had probably a pit in front of them they could fall into. I want us to consider that for ourselves today as well. It would have been easy at this time for the Israelites to idolize their past leadership. Friends, this is a tremendous danger. Idolizing past leaders is usually not honest to their faults or flaws. And what's worse, it tends to put us in a place where we look to the past with a little bit of rose-colored glasses and we say, oh, the good old days, how awesome they were. Oh, when Pastor so-and-so was here. When Moses was here. And our hearts yearn for the past and we are not living in the present. And as we'll see in a minute, that can then affect the way we see present leadership. But then again, I suppose some in this generation might have just as well fallen into another ditch off the other side of the road. Perhaps they didn't idolize their past leaders. Perhaps they demonized him. I find this less likely in their case, but perhaps there were some Israelites who looked back at Moses and thought, you know what, if he'd only been a stronger leader, you know, the people wouldn't have grumbled so much. He didn't have the pastoral care of them that he needed And really, most of our troubles now could be attributed to Moses' failure. After all, he's the guy that struck the rock and claimed glory for himself. And then they could point their finger at Moses and have all these demonizing feelings toward him. Well, friends, let me tell you, if, if we in the church find ourselves in that trap, I ask you honestly, search and think about your heart. Because someone who will demonize past leadership in totality and say, oh yeah, they're just awful. Everything about that just wasn't a good, good thing at all. Their heart wasn't right. If you can't find something in a past leader that God put over his people that was good, that was seeking the good, then your heart is likely going to demonize in the future again. Okay? So these are two strong ditches I am I'm saying to stay away from. We should not idolize and we should not demonize. Let me just be very clear, and this will be true when I talk about present leaders as well. I don't mean they can't be critiqued. When I say not to demonize, I don't say not to disagree. When I say not to idolize, I don't say not to acknowledge the hand of the Lord with them and great things that men have done with his help. Again, I merely warn of these extremes. And, and for the future, these people would have had the same issue with Joshua, but perhaps for him reversed. What, what it, the, the sense for them about Joshua must have been somewhat of doubt. Joshua has never led this people. He's been the assistant of Moses. Now, he is, he is an elder, so he would have been older than the rest of them. So that probably gives him some respect. And he had been with Moses, so he had had a leadership role. They knew this man could could lead at some level, but take the place of Moses? 
perhaps there was some doubt in this man. And I want us to be careful when we think whenever the Lord raises up new leadership, if we doubt them that the Lord raises up, I want us to consider perhaps we actually doubt the Lord and that He has raised them up, that His sovereign hand is bringing them where He places them. But then there's the other pit, again, for Joshua or new leadership. If we idolize new leadership, if we act like they will be the answer to all of our problems, praise the Lord, he's finally sent Joshua. Now we're all going to be okay. Then again, we're not honest to the man's faults and flaws. We put him like a, a shining knight on his white horse, and when he topples, the people of God will be disillusioned. How often we see that in our churches today. How many scandals of pastors falling into sin, fleeing from the ministry, have ravaged churches. Friends, I want us today to acknowledge these dangers in a transition of leadership and to say that we will focus our eyes and think of transition as something that happens under the sovereign hand of God. I want us to, to look real quickly Listen with me to the words of John Calvin, the great Reformed theologian. This suggests the very useful reflection that while men are cut off by death and fail in the middle of their career, the faithfulness of God never fails. On the death of Moses, a sad change seemed impending. The people were left like a body with its head lopped off. While thus in danger of dispersion, not only did the truth of God prove itself to be immortal, but it was shown in the person of Joshua as in a bright mirror that when God takes away those whom he has adorned with special gifts, he has others in readiness to supply their place. And that though he is pleased for a time to give excellent gifts to some, his mighty power is not tied down to them. But he is able, as often as seemeth to him good, to find fit successors, nay, to rise up from the very stones persons qualified to perform illustrious deeds. Today I want us to agree with Calvin and say leadership transition is something that happens under the hand of God, and it happens under the hand of God for a reason, to bring us leaders. So when we reflect Good news on past leadership. I hope we do so in humble appreciation of that which everyone has done to build this church to where it is. Without idolizing them and thinking that they have done everything right. And I want us to look to the future and I want us to have trust that the Lord will be with us with whoever the new leadership is. But that they won't be perfect either. And that we can work through together to even critique and correct new leadership in directions that we may go. And ultimately, I want to call our attention to the fact that the truest, most ultimate leadership of the people of God never changes. The men He appoints are just men who stand with us to follow Christ. As Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And that our true shepherd is Christ and He will look after us in this time, okay? So this sets the stage for us. This is really, that's, all of that was really just my intro. The transition is inevitable. It's going to happen, and I want us to do it well. So then the question becomes, two questions I want to raise. What 
would God have us focus on good news in this time of transition? And then what would he have us do? Where would he focus our gaze and what would he have us do? Well, as to where our focus should be, my very broad point is he would have us focus in times of change on things that don't change. And by the way, that's not only true of transition of leadership. Any transition of your life, this would be relevant. You just got married. You just had kids. just lost a loved one. You just uh, uh, are nearing retirement and the kids are all out of home. Whatever your transition is, he would call us to look at the things that do not change. And how many of you know chief among those is our God himself, our constant, our rock, and our redeemer, who does not change is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who sits on his throne, his robe filling the, the throne room as Carrie preached last week. And so I'm going to resist the urge to preach it this week. It's also not the main point of our text, so we're going to move. So, But besides focusing on God himself, the constant one that does not change, he he would say in our text, and he calls Joshua's attention in our text, two other things that don't change. Look with me to verses 3 through 5. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, uh, all the land of the Hittites and as far as the great sea towards the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Friends, in times of leadership transition, the promises of God do not change. He had promised to his people this land. And through all the transitions they're going through right now, that has not changed. The land is still on the table. Some of you may say to yourself, well, of course it is, Caleb. God doesn't ever go back on a promise. But I want us to consider where these people stood. This promise has been a very long time coming. We hear of it first with Abraham, and he's promised that his, land, his descendants will have this land. And then as we read through Genesis... We're waiting and watching for these people to receive a land. You go through Abraham and Isaac, then Jacob. Then you get to Joseph, and Joseph goes down to Egypt, and we get stuck in Egypt for 400 years. That's a long time, folks. Think of 100 years before now. What did that be, 1919? Take that times four. That's how long these people are down in Egypt, a long, time, a long part of that time, slaves, and there's still this hanging promise of land well they finally come out of there and moses comes and says i'm going to bring you out of this land or take you out from pharaoh and we're going to take you to the land flowing with milk and honey so they go through the wilderness they get to the edge of the land we get to kadesh barnea and send out spies anyone remember sunday school there's 12 spies that come back with grapes and a pole between there's always a coloring thing with the grapes don't know anyway so we get to that point you think finally the land only to have disobedient children of Israel say, I don't think we can do it. And Joshua and Caleb unable to persuade them. And then 40 years back into the wilderness. So by this point, 
the promise has waited a long time. The promise was once so close that they could taste it and then they didn't receive it. And it is this promise that is still extended that has not changed. Friends, I want to remind you today and myself that the promises of God in our lives do not change in times of transition. And it's these promises that he would have us focus our gaze on. And this is where I want to think about this a little bit and give some credit and some caution to my friends of a more charismatic uh, tradition. In more charismatic traditions, they are all over this. They hold the promises of God. Grab that thing. Name it, claim it, and receive it. If he said it, it is yours. It can be yours today. And I think there's some truth in there we need to hear. We, in less charismatic circles, aren't as good about that. We act like maybe these promises aren't for us anymore. But I think the danger is, again, remember, they had to wait a long time for this land. Let me try to bring this to the ground where it meets our lives. How many of you, when you are weary and heavy laden, remember this great promise, come to me, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so you come to the Lord and you pray, and as sincerely as you can be, you're seeking the rest of the Lord. Lord, just give my soul and my spirit some rest. Maybe it's depression and there's turmoil in there. Maybe it's, it's loss. Maybe it's fear of the future and whatever it is, you're seeking this rest. And how many of you know in that moment it doesn't necessarily come in that first time on your knees, does it? Sometimes you wind up going into the next day and the next and into a period of weeks. And you're like, where is this rest? But how many of you too have the testimony where having pressed into the presence of the Lord, spending hours on your knees, that promise has become yours and He has brought rest for your soul. He's brought you out to the other side of that issue and that turmoil, and you can surely say, yes, He will give rest to those who seek Him. Another one I think of is fruitfulness. As we labor for the Gospel, often we don't see the fruit we like, right? I know I've worked children's ministry, youth ministry, I've taught, and I've taught, and I've preached the Gospel, preached the Gospel, so blue in the face, and I am always worked in production fields. I've worked construction and stuff like that. When I put my hands to something, I expect to see a product. I want to see something that, for my work. And when we do that for the gospel, I know I've gone point. I'm like, Lord, where's that 30, 60, and 100 fold? Where is it? Where's the fruitfulness? But then many of you, I know Carlos has mentioned just recently that he thought, how many years? Eight, 12 years? How? Seven years before a convert in his schools, busting his butt for the work of the gospel. And after that, then comes the promise and the progress. And then finally, the the last example I have for you is your sanctification. Some of you are, are just mad that you can't be more like Jesus. You're like, Lord, I'm trying. I'm trying, I seek you, I want to be in the Word, I want to be more like the Lord, and it just seems like I'm not growing the way that I want. I'm stuck in a rut. And again, some of you older, I'm sure, can testify, and even myself at my young age can testify, that as C.S. Lewis said, sometimes 
Nothing ever changes, but when we look back, everything is different. Right? That the Lord was at work in your heart, in your life, and the progress of you being more conformed to Jesus is just a really slow and painful progress process sometimes. So friends, these promises that have come to us, that we have, He would have us focus on them in times of transition. These are things that are offered to us. They are, if you will, in a large part, they're His priorities for us. These are the things that He says He wants for us. Are the things that He promises to us. So let us gaze on those, reach for those, pursue those. And among those, There's one that I would be remiss not to bring up today as well that we may not think of, which is the topic of of this one, a land promise. How many of you know we have a land promise in the people of God? All of this is, is prefiguring the fact that the Lord will call out a people for himself and he will give them a land, a land flowing with milk and honey, one unstained by the curse of the fall, the new heavens and the new earth. And Lord, and people, that that promise is still to us and He would have us still reach for that. As Paul says, that we would look at that that finishing line and we would run the race pursuing that land and knowing that land is for us and it's real. Friends, look to the promises of God in a time of transition and reach out to those. This is really also a promise, but it is a unique one that I want us to spend a little extra time on. Not only do normal land promises or blessing promises not change in a time of transition, but another thing that does not change is God's presence with His people. Did you catch it in the text in verse 5? No man will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. This, again, is easy to blow past. But remember, just as I have been with Moses, so I will be with you. I want us to consider that the Lord's presence was with Moses and with the people in the Exodus account in a very unique way. Not everyone has experienced in your Bible and in today what these people experienced. The presence of the Lord is with Moses as a baby, as he's adrift on the Nile, with naught but the faith of his mother and the grace of God to get him to the palace where he is taken in. The presence of the Lord is with Moses when he's in Midian and he sees a burning bush and he interfaces with God face to face with a burning bush, a visible representation. And there's dialogue and he says, man, get your feet and your shoes off. You're on holy ground. Not everyone has experienced that. The presence of God with the people then in the plagues to fight for these people. To say, no, Pharaoh, you have put them in bondage, but they are mine. I am taking them back, and you will have no sway over them any longer. And at the Red Sea, he finalizes that by fighting for them and crushing beneath the waves all their enemies. And then he brings them to the wilderness, and he guides them, a special presence to guide. How many of them have had a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night? 
that this God is with them to guide them. And then to provide for them when there is no food, there's manna on the ground and there's water coming out of rocks for this people. The way that God was with them and for them. You see, I want you to see that the presence of God in the Exodus account is not just a sidebar, it is the thrust of it. This is the point of the Exodus, is that God has chosen and called the people said that they're His and He is present with them. And this has brought up the issue. How will this holy God of Sinai, that no one can touch the mountain, how he, will He dwell with this sinful, sinful people? How is this going to work? And the answer comes in the tabernacle. That He comes in and, and the glory of God lives in the tabernacle. And He's among them. What a blessing no people could ever ask for. Sinners with this lavish blessing of heaven poured upon them. And what do they do? In the wilderness. Thus accompanied by the mighty presence of God. Yet they grumble. Yet they complain. Yet the manna's not good enough. Friends, I want us to see that I'm not just preaching to them today. Because the same God who came and He got in a tabernacle with the people, once came, Word became flesh, and He dwelt, the Word in the Greek, tabernacled among us. The dwelling of God is with man, with us, and in us. Who are sinful and unworthy. And we couldn't be with God. No one could approach God. Even in the tabernacle, you couldn't come into the Holy of Holies without blood. Only one guy, the high priest, with blood. And that's the closest you could get to the immediate, imminent, face-to-face presence of God. And anyone else but someone with blood, a high priest with blood, would be killed. And yet us, to us in the body of Christ, because Christ has come and He went with His blood, and busted that veil when He was on a cross at Calvary. Now the presence of God is open to us. And the craziest thing of all, that He would send His Spirit and indwell us. He is in us. He is with us. He is for us. The presence of God. He is our comfort. He is our power. I come to say this to you today. This is the most important thing I'm going to say all day. If any of this seems strange to you, this presence that I'm talking about seems overplayed. If you do not have the presence of God in your life, you have nothing. Not just a little bit, not just the wrong things. You have nothing ultimately because the presence of God in your life to walk with God, to know your creator, that's what you and me are made for. And anything else, everything else falls so woefully, tragically short that you don't even know what you have missed if you miss the presence of God. So as we go through this transition and we talk about how, oh, Lord, be with us in this time, do not let that become a sidebar to you, Christian. Not let it be a sidebar in your heart that the Lord be with us and for us at Good News Bible Church. This is our comfort and this is is our strength that the dwelling of God is in us and His power is for us. So, in a time of transition, He would have us look at things that don't change. He would have us look at 
The promises that do not change. He would have us remember his presence does not change. But what would he have us do? If we know now where we are to look and what we are to dwell on, what would he have us do? Well, look with me to verses 6 through 9. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right nor to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Friends, while we're in a time of transition, the Lord would have us be obedient to His Word and courageous to pursue His mission. Obedient to His Word and courageous to pursue His mission. So no matter what transition we're in or time of our life we are in, Part of the call that we see here in verses 6 to 9 is to be an obedient student of the Word. You know, he, he is saying uh, that, that you're going to have to study this law, Joshua, to make sure you obey it. it, it there's, there's enough to the law. How many of y'all read the law? Anyone read the law in Exodus, Leviticus, you know, usually reading plans die there? There's a lot of minutia going on in the law. And that's just in basically Exodus and Leviticus, if you want to retold again, Deuteronomy. So on the long stretch, the law we're talking about is three books of your Bible. Since then, we've added 63 more. So if he was going to need to study it to keep it in his mind to understand it, how much more church do we need to? But I, I want us to realize, though, in the lifespan of the church, there has been something culturally that has happened where, frankly, in modern American evangelical Protestant churches, we don't think we need to study the Bible the same way people used to think we did. We think we can kind of crack it open at a Bible study and read a chapter and talk about how we feel about it and that that's going to touch us and be good. Well, I do want to maintain that I think anyone can pick up the Word of God and understand it. But as any written document, as any letter that you would write to me or I would write to you, you do need the context of the surroundings. And you do need to understand on the whole of the book what's going on, the whole of the Bible, and then within the actual book, you know, say Joshua, and then within the individual chapters. It requires study. It's not a simple, quick fix. You don't pick up Romans 8 through 11 or 12 and just get it with a quick run-through. It requires study. And he would say to us, study it, know it, and understand it. He uses this word, he says, meditate on it. And one of the amazing things that Calvin actually noted in his commentary that absolutely blew my mind, if you've known this all your life, I'm just a little behind. But he said, don't let it depart from your mouth, but meditate on it. There seems to be a link here for, for the Lord when he says this. 
And when we think of meditation, how many of you think of putting it under my eyes? I read it, putting it in my mind. I think on it over and over and over. But he's tying it to your tongue. Saying on your mouth, probably because I, I would think there was a lot of reciting and memorization of the law that went on at that time. Leaders, and it was said that even kings in the law, it prescribes kings to memorize the law. So there is this expectation that's probably coming out of your mouth. How many of us, when we study the word, does it come back out of our mouths in the week? How many of us share that word back out, out of our mouths, such that we would know it, and it's affecting ourselves, and in coming out of our mouth, it's affecting others? But I must be moving on. But the point here is not just to study it for a cognitive understanding. He couldn't be more clear in these verses that I want you to study it and understand it so that you'll do it. So that you'll do it. Because if you don't know what's in the Word, you can't do it. You guys could ask uh, probably Kerwin today about some experiences with his students. Or they might come to class and be all surprised that some assignment is due. And everyone else has it, but... Always there's this one kid that doesn't have his assignment. I didn't know this was due, so I didn't do the work. Kerwin, what would the answer be? Usually, it's in the syllabus. It was in the syllabus. And you didn't see it because you didn't read the syllabus, and hence you didn't do the work. Church, how many of us are failing out of the Lord's Class on Christianity because we haven't read the syllabus and so we didn't do the work. Or worse, how many of us are failing because we read the syllabus, we understood the syllabus, then we just had to go out with our friends to get a Chick-fil-A shake the night before and so we couldn't write the paper. We just never quite managed to get around to the obeying it part. Friends, that obedience part is key. It is the point of it all. So much so that what God does here is links. He makes a direct link between their obedience and their success. Friends, for, for a marriage day, if there was a marriage, someone says, why isn't our marriage quite right? Well, are the two of you both obeying the word? Someone is thinking, again, why am I not growing in Christ the way that I should? And the question might be, are you obeying the word? Our church is going through a time of struggle and involvement is low. What gimmick do I need to make people be more active? Well, question, is, are everyone obeying the word? Make no mistake, in this time of transition of leadership, let us not dare look to a leadership and say, how will you make us successful with a plan? Friends, the success in the body of Christ is not an achievement of men. It is a gift from God, and He saves it only for those who obey. We cannot be successful in our mission if we will not obey the Word of God. His hand will not be with us, and again, His hand in His presence is all that matters. So friends, He would call us to obey, and He would call us to courageously pursue His mission. I'm running really short on time, so I've got to rush through this last point. Three times in the final verses, Joshua is called to be strong and courageous. Why? Well, it's going along with what he was just tasked with to give this people the land. And what that means is the conquest. That means these men are going to war. 
Nomads who have lived in the desert are going to war against a fortified and entrenched people. This is so scary, and the odds were so clearly against them that their parents just turned tail and ran, remember? This is a scary mission he's called them to. And let me pause and just ask you today, the mission for the church, as you understand it, is it scary? Do I need to stand here today and fortify you to go out there and face the mission God has for you because it's going to be scary for you this week to do it? There's versions of the mission of the church as simple as show up to church on Sunday and then be nice to people. And friends, let me tell you, that's not scary at all. You can do that. You don't need God for that. I mean, maybe sometimes it's really early in the morning and getting out of bed. But other than that, no, you don't need God just to show up and put on the face. You can do that on your own. But what about this? What about if we were supposed to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? What if, as we went as ambassadors... People were going to think poorly of us and mistreat us and beat us in the synagogues. What if you were going to be looked at as weird and an outcast because you were a city set on a hill different from all the others and that you didn't love the world or the things in the world because the love of the world was not in you because you love the Father? What if the, the mission you were called to as you do this was to love people with such a self-sacrificing love that you gave up things and, and ran away from the self-indulgence that the world peddles to us on billboards and in every ad that we see thousands of day after day. What if the call for the gospel to make disciples was going to cost you everything, that you would have to go as a seed into the soil and die that you might bear fruit? Then... In that mission, it would be scary this week because it would be hard. It would be a fearful thing and failure would wait for us. And then, if we believe in that mission, Good News Bible Church, that Jesus paints in the Word, we would need to hear the words of verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know, what's interesting about verse 9 of Joshua is the same God who said it, said it again in Matthew. Go, therefore, and make disciples in all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, catch it, teaching them to observe, obey, all that I have commanded you that's written in the Word, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The more things change, the more things stay the same, The Lord has a mission for his people still today. He appoints leaders over his people today. And he has given us a mission today. So as we go from here, and we know we go into a time of transition, friends, focus on the things that do not change like the promises of God. Focus and rest in and take your hope in the presence of God with you. And ultimately, radically and courageously pursue That mission of God. Do not shrink back from it. The Israelites did that. And they lost the blessing of God. They did not obey. And they lost the success and the blessing. I'm not telling you that if you don't obey Christ. That you'll lose your salvation. We're so caught up these days. In getting salvation. Of getting to heaven. That we miss that there's so much more for us. Besides that. That's good. And that's what we want for every one of us here today. 
But if you're content just to say, oh, I trusted in Christ, my sins are covered, but I don't really care about success on the mission, you're missing it. You're missing it. Get that commendation instead. If everyone else in our culture today, if everyone else in this church were to say, I'm not going to go all out for the gospel, if I'm not going to go all out for the mission, be what Caleb and Joshua were in that first entry of the land and say, no, the Lord is with me and we can do this. And then God will say of you that you followed him with your whole heart. He will bring you into the land. He will bless you. Pray with me. Lord, I pray for these people today, my people, the covenant people of God in this room. I pray that you would make us bold. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have trifled with your mission and your vision. I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to seek out what you would have us to do here. That you would fix our gaze on you. We thank you and we praise you for your constancy. In the name of Jesus, our our risen Lord, we pray. Amen.